0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: At the core, we all certainly understand and know what hopelessness is. I mean, Hopelessness is... Owing $1,000 to the IRS when you only have 150 bucks in your checking account, right? That's, that's hopelessness. Wanting the promotion at work at the age of 61 when you know you're slowing down, and up comes the 30-year-old gangbuster co-worker wanting the same promotion. That can be pretty hopeless. If you're desiring to see your first grandchild when you have been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and your daughter isn't even expecting, that can be pretty hopeless. A devastating 7.2 earthquake hitting the poorest town in the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, killing tens of hundreds of thousands of people, that can be pretty hopeless as well. It's sad but true that oftentimes even within the church, we have a far better understanding and grasp on what hopelessness is, but don't understand much about what hope is, let alone the notion of being able to pay it forward. Hope Casting is the title of a new book by my guest tonight. Mark He is partnered with the Youth Cartel. It's an organization that challenges youth ministers through strategic counseling and innovative resource development for youth ministries. He has served as vice president of ministry resources and later as president of youth specialties in San Diego, an organization that trains and equips church youth workers, and he's authored or contributed to more than 60 books. And Mark, great to have you on the show
0: so much, Greg. I'm glad to
1: be here. Why is it that we as the Church um, don't really have a good grasp on what hope is? We've got a lot of experience, to be sure, with hopelessness, uh, but it seems as if a lot of in the, us in the Church do not really have a good understanding from a biblical perspective as to what hope is, and oftentimes I think we, we end up confusing biblical hope with just wishful thinking.
0: Absolutely. I, I, it's exactly why I to start to explore this for myself before I even started writing the book I was finding myself in a season of hopelessness from a job loss and uh, all the identity questions that came from that and and really wrestled with my I think immature ideas of what hope is I just didn't find them sustainable I feel like we've been I've been told so many times that hope was like you said, wishful thinking, I would say hope was optimism, right? Just put on a happy face and be positive. And I wasn't finding that all that helpful. It wasn't, wasn't doing anything for me. And, and when I tried to start looking at what other Christians were saying uh, in books and things like that, I looked on the Internet and on Amazon and stuff, and so much of the language of hope was only connected to the afterlife which is beautiful and wonderful and true, but it wasn't enough to pull me out of bed, right? It wasn't enough to give me fuel of um, kind of encouragement for that given day. It's not like I was in a deep depression, but I was in a tough place, and so I started to really search scripture and found that my understanding of hope was not lining up with the Bible. Yeah.
1: And I think ironically, I mean that that 's something that I think a lot of us certainly struggle with, no matter what stage we happen to be at in our walk with christ and I think also we tend to apply as i think you 're suggesting mark a lot of secular definitions to hope that, that kind of seems as if well if we if we somewhere in there uh quote a Bible verse in the process we 've somehow brought it back to the biblical perspective i mean for example it 's Not unusual for people to say, well, having hope. You know, at the end, it it, it just makes you the optimist. And then people will say, well, I know so-and-so. He is a natural optimist. Okay, so then Uh define for me an unnatural optimist. And how do you go about adopting the the sense of optimism that a person has? What is it really based on? And I certainly, in reading through your book today, uh, drew the conclusion that, well, you know, uh, whether you're an unnatural optimist or a natural one, optimism in and of itself tends to kind of be uh, built on a pretty shallow foundation.
0: Yeah, you know, and I'm not anti-optimism. I would say I am an optimist, and I'd much rather be around a group of optimists than a group of pessimists. So. I'm pro-optimism. It's just not the same thing as biblical hope. And optimism is helpful in little short spurts, but for a lifetime of meaning and purpose, uh, and it's particularly when we're in difficult seasons, we need something more than that, and that's when hope comes into play.
1: What strikes me about the lessons that you that you share in the book, and we're going to get into this deeper uh, after we do a timeout here, but what, what strikes me is that you, you you show us through the book that the journey to hope is not just a uh, snap your finger and you're there, that, in fact, the journey to hope takes us through hopelessness. Mm,
0: yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Explain a little bit about that, would you? Because yeah, some people say, well, Maybe. wait a minute, I, I don't want to be in hopelessness. I just want to hurry up and quick, get me to hope.
0: <laughs> Maybe the easiest way to, to do that is to to start with where this first started to become a, an awareness for me. And it, you mentioned in your intro of me when an earthquake hits the poorest country or the poorest city in the Western Hemisphere, and that's where, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, this started to shift for me. Um, I was in the season of hopelessness after losing a job, and just months after that ended up uh, in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, leading a short trip for a group of influential youth workers three weeks after the Haiti earthquake. And I expected to see lots of pain and suffering, and boy did I, to an extent that I've never experienced it or seen it in my life. What's shocked me and I didn't expect at all was the deep level of hopefulness that I found in Haitian believers. And I it was completely unexpected. We were driving down a busy road on our first day in Haiti having have to drip we had to drive over from the Dominican because the Port au Prince airport was still closed. And we got stopped in traffic and we saw all this crowd of people up ahead and thought it must be a protest and Several of us jumped out of our little minivan and made our way up to see what was happening. And when I came upon this crowd of about 1,000 people still assuming it was a protest, I felt, I want to separate from my group and kind of get in the middle of this and try to feel what's going on because I couldn't understand the language. Of course, they're speaking in Haitian Creole. So I pushed my way into the middle of the crowd, and it wasn't until I was in the middle of the crowd that I noticed that all of the people had big smiles on their faces. They weren't. They weren't angry faces of protest, and these two little old Haitian women came up to me, grabbed my hands, and through body language made it clear that I was supposed to start dancing. (laughs) (laughs) Her an an overweight old white guy was kind of an awkward moment for me, but it was compelling, and I knew that I needed to give myself to whatever this experience was, and I started hopping around. I noticed they're not yelling, they're singing, and all of these quick realizations came to me. I noticed at the end of the street there was a a band up on a stage, and it suddenly struck me, these people are worshiping God, which was completely counter to what I expected. And then I realized these people have experienced more pain in their life than I ever will. Every one of them I came to find have lost people Uh, lost homes, lost jobs, but they have a level of hope that I have never experienced. And that verse that I'd memorized as a child in a Bible memory program from the book of Romans, when Paul says to us, We, uh, we have, I'm just blanking on the verse. We rejoice in our sufferings. That's it. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering leads us to character and character leads us to hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. And it it just dawned on me, these people know hope because of their sufferings, and in their exile and honest expression of pain to God, Jesus comes and meets them and brings hope to them. That was the revolutionary moment for me.
1: And hopefully it's going to be a, a crystallizing moment for our listeners as well. As we're talking about this issue of, of not just finding and keeping and sharing things unseen, that experience of hope, but uh, sort of playing that hope forward toward others. The book is called Hope Coulson. It's author with us today, Mark Ho We'll take a brief time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to The Conversation. We're visiting today with author Mark Ostriker. We're talking about the issue of hope. His new book is called Hope Casting. And as we've been discussing, oftentimes we have a better handle on what hopelessness is than what true biblical hope looks like. Is hope inextricably, in your opinion, Mark, tied to faith?
0: That's a great question. You know, it's interesting you ask that, because I have some relatives in my extended family who are excited for me about my book, but are not believers, and as they've started to read this, they've asked the question, so I'm not a Christian, does that mean that I can't experience hope? And they're kind of pushing a little bit, because they (laughs) are wanting to know if I'm writing them off. Uh, But they're also curious, genuinely curious. And I think it's a fascinating question. I have to say, and there's part of me that isn't completely sure about that. I believe that God gives out, through God's gracious love, gives out gifts to people, whether they acknowledge God or not. Um, But I do believe that faith plays a particularly important role in our, our understanding or experience of hope, that that role is particularly played out when we face fear. And so what I discovered, Craig, is I started to dig into both the biblical examples of hope, particularly in the book of Isaiah, but I think we see this unfold in lots of stories in the Bible also, and as I dug into what some people way smarter than myself, particularly people like Walter Brueggemann and Jürgen Moltmann, theologians who have written on the topic of hope, what i saw was this pattern that started to emerge that from a place of exile we and we today experience exiles that are maybe not being forced from our native land but we we experience relational exiles or a loss of dreams or our futures. all kinds of different exiles from that place if we're able to be honest with ourselves and honest with god about our dissatisfaction if we're willing to release control and ask for salvation then the next thing that happens is this place of fear as soon as we release control and in some ways i think the idea of putting on a happy face and using positive thinking is really a control mechanism right i'm going to try to control this situation into being positive And that doesn't deliver hope. So when we release control, at that moment, we are often faced with fears, fears about ourselves, fears about God, and that's where faith really comes into play. So this forced
1: optimism that we see oftentimes, I mean, that's not going to carry us far, because as you're suggesting, that leaves out of the equation, and maybe intentionally so in some cases, the true source of hope, and that is God himself.
0: Absolutely. Yes, because... I mean, my suggestion is that we cannot create hope, Uh, and we don't see that in the Bible. People don't drum up hope on their own. Uh, Instead, hope is a gift that comes with the presence of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that you
1: mention that, because, you know, reading the book, uh, and and I want you to explain this character to listeners, because I think that'll give them a a point of reference here. You talk about um, Bobby W. Clark. Uh, And it's funny because when I read that passage, I thought, you know, that reminds me of a lot of people. And I don't want to get in trouble here with some, but I know that I will. There was a season a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, when a little booklet came out called The Prayer of Jabez. Oh, sure. And there were folks that were just, you know, quoting this right and left, and there was coins that were stamped that had the Prayer of Jabez on it. And and the more I heard people talk about this, I thought, okay, this is the latest fad, and it is built on a sense of forced optimism. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Prayer of Jabez in that context reminded me so much of the character Bobby W. Clark in the book. Put that into context <laughs> for listeners, would you?
0: Yes, I will. Well, that was a horrible situation. I was a young junior high pastor at a church in Omaha, Nebraska, and our, our wonderfully revered and wise and deeply spiritual outreach pastor had this great idea for an evangelistic event, and it was to bring in this motivational speaker who was apparently, I didn't know him, but apparently well-known on the business motivational circuit, And he happened to be a Christian, but most people didn't know that. So the idea was bring in this motivational speaker, have a nice dinner in a hotel banquet room, have this motivate, have our congregation bring their business associates who didn't know Jesus, and then have this guy talk, give some business principles, and then present the gospel. In some ways, it was a, I said it was a classic kind of bait and switch, right? We wanted you to come for the business, bits, and then suddenly we're going to bring the gospel on you.
1: Come for the business and and stay for the altar call. Got it. Yeah,
0: exactly, and it was done in a horrible way, and I experienced it because even though I didn't have business associates because I worked at the church, my wife did. And so, you know, I guilted my wife into guilting some of her coworkers to come to this thing, and because they were friends with her, they came, and, and it was horrible. So Bobby W. Clark, who I mentioned in the book is not his real name, I... I changed his name because I have no interest in defrauding or de- <laughs> defaming uh, a now-dead motivational speaker. But um, he he had this stick, Craig, that he used. And I'm kind of – there's part of me that's kind of impressed, that anybody who has a signature move, and when they do that move, you think, oh, that's Bobby W. Clark's move. That's kind of impressive, right? So his move was that he would say – Life is wonderful, but when in between is and wonderful, he would kick his leg really high up in the air, which was a little strange and unique to see from a very tall businessman in a suit.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, uh, it's, the Rockettes, Academy, if it's the Rockettes uh, at the Radio City Music Hall, it might be different.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. But that was his thing, and he was known for it, right? It was his motivational line. Life is wonderful. High kick. and. He, at this point, I think he came out of retirement to do this event at our church. He was an older guy, and he, I don't think he'd done the high kick in a few years. And he talked business stuff for, I don't know, maybe three minutes, really, really short. And then he went into a, just a horribly manipulative, shallow version of the gospel. Uh, and at the end of it, he did his move, but he, he kind of pushed did, he he hadn't done the high kick in a while, and he said, life is, and then you could tell he was just trying really hard to get this thing to work, and he had to try three times before he finally got the high kick to work, and and it was just terrible. The whole thing was um, awkward, and uh, I was embarrassed, my wife was embarrassed, but I think in many ways, what, aside from the hackneyed version of the Gospel, which really wasn't Point of why I included that story in the book, it was I think that that idea is selling us a lie, and it's a lie that's very prevalent in American culture, and that's that just if you smile, if you grin and bear it, it then everything will be fine. Like you mentioned, prayer of Jabez in the book, I mentioned kind of a the secular counterpart in some ways, which was the book The Secret, which told everybody sold by the millions told everybody, if you visualize your positive future and believe it and claim it to be true, it will become true. And that kind of thinking, which of course we understandably have big reservations about from a spiritual or a theological perspective, but the reality is it just doesn't work. It doesn't provide me with a kind of sustainable hope that comes from the presence of Jesus.
1: Well, moreover, this sense of the power of positive thinking upon which, uh, you know, the careers of Norman Vincent Peale and... uh the guy that used to run uh, Crystal Cathedral, uh, Robert yeah. Schuler and others have, have based their entire uh, careers upon. I, I think it's interesting because they'll talk about the power of positive thinking, but then if you forget them to talk for a while. You come to find out that uh, what they think it takes to have hope actually doesn't arrive until you find wellness all around. And you have another illustration, even going back to your experience In Haiti, where it's one thing to have hope when all is well going around you, and yet it's an entirely different thing to have hope when everything around you is falling apart. And it's interesting that you note uh, people, and sometimes from our first world perspective – in a third world perspective, we would think this is just a hopeless circumstance. And yet, as you discovered that group of believers in praise and worship in Haiti following this horribly devastating earthquake, I was down there in November, and believe me, five years later, not much is better. And yet, in the middle of all of that, they found hope. And I guess that's really what you're talking about. It's, it's finding hope in and through those difficult moments, the exile moments.
0: Yeah, and, you know, on a, on a much smaller scale than the Haitian people experienced, I went through this journey myself. And really, the book was very much a result of my own journey. And it was around that time, uh, feeling very kind of lost and wondering what I should do next uh, in my life. How would I both provide for my family, but also where would I find meaning? The job I had had was one of deep meaning and all of my friendships and everything were connected to it. So all of that was stripped away. And um In the midst of that, I went out to the desert. I live in San Diego, California, just down from you, and just east of me over the mountains, about 90 minutes, is is a big desert. And there's a, a wonderful old couple from my church that have a cabin out there, and I use it sometimes for prayer retreats. So I went out for a whole week. to. I was just hoping to meet God. I needed to be silent. I needed to get away from the screaming voices of fear that were in my head, Um, And I went out there and I did something very interesting. I had had a friend encourage me that it would be good to give space to the different strong emotions that I was feeling. And I tend to be fairly reserved and held back about my emotions, which is I don't think all that uncommon for men anyhow. Um, And I went out there and I really gave myself over to a day of anger. And I saw it as a prayer, right? It wasn't just me stomping around and cussing in the desert or something. It was uh, about me being honest about how I was feeling before my God, knowing that God was there with me. So a day of anger and a day of hurt and a day of sadness and, um, and a day of fear and a journaled like crazy, and, and then finally a day of joy, which really surprised me because I knew I was going to have that day on the fifth day, And I didn't think it was going to be possible, but once I had kind of been honest about all that other stuff, released control, and opened myself up to the presence of God, I found that God, of course God's going to meet me in that space. And with God's presence comes hope, and even on that fifth day in the desert, I experienced a tremendous amount of real joy, and I feel like that was the beginning point. That was the first step into uh, some sustainable hope. For
1: my future. And it sounds like a big part of that was experiencing honest emotion before God, which sometimes I think we get confused, too. It's like if we're not clear with the Lord about where we're at and how we're feeling in that moment, um, it, it, we feel as if, well, that to do so would be sort of maligning or, or um, uh, uh, not being truthful or faithful, rather, to our sense of hope. We'll talk a bit about that as our conversation with Mark Ostriker the book, Hope Casting, Finding, Keeping, and Sharing the Things Unseen, continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We continue our conversation with Mark Ostriker the book, by the way, Hope Casting newly released by InterVarsity Press you'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects uh, amazon.com and uh, also you can get uh, what's your your website am i correct here is whyismarco.com That's my blog
0: that's okay. correct Okay
1: okay great mm-hmm. whyismarco Marco k o.com all right, let's uh, kind of pull this thing uh, together if we can. We've we've been through a lot of the emotion side of this and, and sort of resetting a lot of our expectations. Um, certainly having honest emotion before God uh, during that exile period is is critically important. I guess at the end of the day, um, people wonder, is hope something I create or something that God brings?
0: Yeah, great question. So the, the process as I've seen it in Scripture is that We have longings right all of us have these longings and whether we're in a hopeless or hopeful time we have longings and desires and those are good and bad there's a whole combination of those particularly when we're going through a difficult time we're experiencing we often experience longings that are kind of self-focused right because of our pain and that's understandable when god comes and meets us when we open up and release control creating space for god to come and meet us god brings hope And that starts to transform our longings. And that's where things really start to get beautiful and much more than just about me and my pathetic little problems. Because as hope and longing start in what I call this dance, I compare it to a tango dance, because it's this dance where each of those two partners, hope and longing, continue to inform and change each other. God brings hope. That shifts my longings. As my longings shift, I need to exercise more faith, that God will make himself known in new ways and give me more faith, and that process starts to transform, and my longings turn outward. Instead of just being self-focused, I start to have transformed longings for the world, and that's where we start to see this idea of hope casting, that my hopes start to be for other people and their needs and their longings, and I can actually be an active agent of the hope that God wants to bring to the so world. So this isn't That's just something
1: passive that goes on inside of my heart or my head. I mean, you talk about in the book moving from vision to action, and as you suggest, that that process, that journey, going from need, becoming hope, becoming action, becoming hope-casting. Elaborate on that.
0: Yeah, I really think of it. The, the mental image for me is one of those kind of classic rainbird sprinklers that turns around and is spraying all around in a circle. That, that's the picture I have. When I have. When I experience transformed longings because of the presence of God in my life bringing hope, I become like that rainbird sprinkler casting off hope to people around me. And there's no question that's active. That is not just a passive thing. So I start to speak into and serve and pray for and and model hope in front of other people, and it has a cascading effect on their lives. Now what's
1: brilliant, let me interrupt, Mark, because what's brilliant about that example, if any of us have ever taken the time, uh, and listeners will say, well, Craig, you're just weird, but if any of us have ever taken the time to to look at the way the rainbird sprinkler head operates, there's this metal arm that moves back against a steady stream of water, and it interrupts that stream of water and it's on a spring and it pivots back and forth and each time it flies into the water the force of the water presses it in the opposite direction the spring of course takes it back uh, yet once again and that's what gives that sprinkler head the momentum to go into a circle so it's interesting because what you're suggesting here is much like the way the rainbird sprinkler head functions it's the experience of receiving hope giving hope receiving hope giving hope is that accurate yeah.
0: Absolutely. That's exactly it. That's the idea. And again, that is what we see over and over again through Scripture, not only uh, unpacked in detail in the, the book of Isaiah, but we see it in stories like the bleeding woman, the story of Zacchaeus. I see it in blind Bartimaeus. I even see it in the, the life of Mary. And over and over again in these stories, we see that pattern emerging.
1: And that pattern uh, again, there is this process that we 've talked about before in in not just suddenly going from despair to hope in one day but moving through despair or or as you talk about, and I think of uh, the, many of the experiences of the Apostle Paul in this, you talk about embracing dissatisfaction in moving toward hope
0: yes, yeah, because unless we 're honest about our dissatisfaction why is why is here not good enough right why is this? Current experience of my day or my life at this time. Why is this not enough? What am I dissatisfied about? And that is an honest starting point that postures us. It's not a. It's not a. Um, it's not six steps to happy living, right? Instead, these are they're postures, they're practices that we can put into our to place in our lives in order to help us release control and open ourselves up to the presence of God. So those postures are honesty with ourselves, that's the dissatisfaction part, right, naming our dissatisfaction, and then honest cries to God, Uh, and in that is releasing control. And then we face fear, and we have to exercise faith or a force of will to continue to keep our hands open and not try to grasp control again. If we pull back and grasp control, we go right back to exile again. Mm -hmm. And if we if we practice those three things then i believe that god uh, is freed up we have opened ourselves up to the hope bringing presence of jesus in our lives and then yeah our longings get transformed and we cast off more hope to others we
1: we have certainly distilled into a very short period of time mark a great detail in all of this and listeners can certainly have the opportunity to go much deeper and understand more about this matter of hope what it means from a biblical perspective and not just how to how to to possess it and take and take hold of it and take charge of it but that sense of hope both in the current tense and the future tense and as we said a moment ago hope uh, you know starting with need that becomes hope which becomes action which becomes hope Casting. That's the title of the book, Hope Casting, and it's available, as we mentioned, at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Its author has been our guest on this segment of the program, Mark Oestreicher. Mark, thanks so much for the time and the insights.